0: yourself. I got an, an interesting email. Interesting email from one of our listeners who is really concerned about sobriety. He says, you know, what do I need to do to ensure that I can get over this sexual addiction? And so, I very clearly said to him, "Hey, You know my 10 tools. I talk about them all the time. And I really want you to do the following. I want you to go to 12-step meetings and find a sponsor and call people in the fellowship and do the green or white book and do the 12 steps. And then I want you to see a CSAT, a certified sexual addiction therapist. And I want you to be able to... Join a sexual addictions group. Do recovery reading other than the green or white book. Do some inspirational reading. Journal, meditate, and pray. And then please put filters on your phone and agree to polygraph tests. If you do that stuff, you will get healthy. Okay, I had another email from Eileen, and she said, I want to ask you a question, and perhaps you've addressed this already and can point me to the episode. Well, in actuality, I really hadn't, so here we go. I've heard that oftentimes the type of pornography that a person is drawn to can tell you a lot about the trauma in their past, and it can oftentimes untangle the original wounds. My husband told me that he was interested only in lesbian type porn, girl on girl. Well, I want to understand more about what this might mean about my husband's past, but I really don't want to Google it as it might take me to some triggering sites. When my husband was just an infant, his older brother, who was disabled, had to be institutionalized because his needs were too great for his parents. I have wondered if there was some sort of emotional stress from his parents that he may have picked up on, especially from his mother. Do you think they may have contributed to him seeking some sort of affirmation from women? I really don't know. I can't even imagine the male brain most of the time, so I'm just grasping at straws, but would really like more insight. Do you have any insights you might point me to? Well, you know... I've got to tell you that um, I am not somebody who believes that men that enjoy lesbian sex have had some deep-seated issue with women. Here's what I believe to be true. I'm not saying he doesn't, but here is what I think. Many times, Sex addiction has to do with the taboo factor. And the taboo factor is that which a man or a woman sees certain kinds of behaviors and knows that they are not supposed to be thinking about them, viewing them, exploiting them. And so it's not the actual behavior of two women having sex it is the fact that that's taboo. That is something that perhaps your husband um, would never have had an opportunity to see as an adolescent or as an early adult. And so now he is really somewhat addicted to that type of pornography, not because of the sex, but because of the fact that it is taboo. and you know that lights up the brain in lots of different ways. I just did a YouTube, it'll be on tomorrow, where I talk about the three types of um, the three types of experiences that an addict can have that is as addictive as the actual behaviors. One type is the arousal. The arousal type is for people that really like high-risk behaviors. It's for people that really go for intensity and frequency in their sex addiction. You know, this might be a man who goes to massage parlors and actually gets a dopamine hit, not from the happy ending, per se, but from the risk that he is taking. When he goes into a massage parlor and, A, he's not sure whether his masseuse will oblige him sexually, and, B, he gives the codes that say he's interested and he waits to see if there's a response. That is high risk, let alone, C, C, the fact that that masseuse could be an undercover agent. All right, that's one type of high risk. The second kind of high risk is people that, you know, are exhibitionists and they walk around and flash somebody, enjoying the high they get from doing something illicit and illegal that's going to shock somebody else or somebody who is in a coupleship where they jump out of the car on the highway and have sex on the hood of the car. They're only involved in the sex for three minutes, and it truly is not the sex that gives them the charge. It's the arousal behind the sex. So i got to ask you, if you're a sex addict, do you... Experience the intensity and frequency of dopamine, that rush, because of the arousal. And if you do, more than likely, you may participate in other activities that increase adrenaline. Maybe you are a firefighter. Maybe you um, jump out of planes. Maybe you do cocaine, crack, meth, things that keep you very stimulated they all confuse with the addiction to cause high arousal. Okay, and that lesbian issue may be an arousal issue, which produces dopamine. The second kind brain hit, if you will, that sets up sexual addiction is numbing. And numbing are those addicts that get involved in behaviors that disassociate them, that create altered states where there is time distortion and they lose all sense of reality of time. You know the ones, the guys that get on the Internet at 11 o'clock and the next thing they know it's 4 in the morning and they've spent five hours surfing the net talking to women in chat rooms, um, looking at illicit sex, they have created a state of mind where they're actually numbing out. And oftentimes they combine that with um, activities, drugs, that also numb. They may do downers, opiates. They may drink. And, you know, alcohol is a depressant. It doesn't stimulate you. It slows you down. And so when they combine that with this altered state of sexual addiction, what ends up happening is that they numb out and they don't feel. And they lose time and they aren't in pain because they have avoided the pain due to the numbing. Now that third type of sex addiction hit is fantasy. And I have so many people that fall into that pattern. And fantasy is something whereby the actual fantasy of what's going to happen, the anticipatory anxiety if you will. The image or imagery or imagination is way better than the actual sexual addiction. And so in this kind of situation, sometimes men are addicted to the chase. They're addicted to the pursuit, the conquest, and the seduction of another person. But when push comes to shove and they find that prostitute and they end up in their hotel room or at their apartment, What they find is they can't even have an erection, let alone an orgasm, because the fantasy does not match up to the reality of the situation. Maybe she has dirty fingernails. Maybe she has children running around. Maybe she's got syringe needles sitting by the bedside. You know, something that wakes them up to the reality of you are with somebody Is a mess. She's a drug addict. She's not who she said she was. And you know what? You wanted fantasy. You did not want reality. And I have met many, many, many men who over and over and over again have that experience. And their fantasy never matches up to their sex addiction. And for those men, they're always looking for the hit. That will. So they may have 12, 15, 20 experiences that are actually anticlimactic. And then they get a good hit. She looks like their image of a porn star, or she looks like a Hollywood star, or she has a certain breast size. So that is then what grabs them and keeps them addicted to what else is out there that I can get. So be thinking about yourself and what has your addiction taught you. How does it show up? Are you somebody that really loves the intensity of adrenaline? And so you're somebody who goes in for the arousal? Are you somebody who likes to numb out? and disappear and escape from the realities of life? You medicate by doing downers or opiates or alcohol, as opposed to the arousal people that do meth, meth, crack, cocaine, amphetamines? Or are you somebody who gets into fantasy and your hope for what you're going to experience get ends up being way different than the reality of the situation, and yet you keep going back for more. You're like on that in that elusive chase for fantasy, for something better, for a fairy tale, for a porn tale, if you will. Okay, well those are the three types. And oftentimes they result in a fourth type, which is deprivation. But we'll talk about that next show. I want to leave you right here with what's going on, with what might be happening in your brain and what your sexual addiction is really like. Because i got to tell you, when you are better able to understand yourself, you're better able to avoid the pitfalls. You can't do it alone. You need a committee of people to help you. And if you think this show is going to be enough, it isn't. And if you think a certified sexual addictions therapist is going to be enough, I'm not. And if you think that your pastor is going to be enough, it isn't. But if you combine the three of us with a committee of people who've been there and done that, who have recovery, and you do the right reading, and you do the right praying and meditating and journaling, you put filters on your phone, you put polygraph uh, tests to the match, you are more than likely going to find success, and that's what it is all about. Now, tonight I have Evan, and she has co-written a memoir of the struggles of being the partner of a sex addict. And she has been writing her story, and I have actually been adding some clinical information to it. And you know, one of the things that I think is so important about her is that she is a woman who does not give up. She wants to share all everything about her life, including the mistakes. So if you're an addict out there, I want you to work on empathy and understanding what she's saying and how it may apply to the people that you love. And if you're a partner out there, I want you to to see if your stories are similar as she shares what's going on in her life, both in the past and currently. I'm very excited to have her on tonight, and she has worked really hard towards sobriety. So welcome to the show. Hey. How are you, Carol? I am fine. Tell me a little bit about the book that you're writing and what gave you the courage to put your life out there.
1: Okay. Well, um I'm writing the memoir for one with one primary goal in mind and That's really that I want to advocate for um, all women out there in abusive relationships and or relationships with a sex addict. I just don't want other women to suffer unnecessarily. Um, Not that I can change that, but just to add some insight to what it's like firsthand and for them to know they're not alone. And then, of course, with your clinical um, additions to the book, it's it's going to give them all professional um, help and insight and kind of steer them. I um I've been through so much and I was sort of determined to find some sort of, for lack of a better word, positivity from all that suffering. And mm-hmm. I was just determined that it wasn't going to totally bring me down and completely destroy me. So I had to work on my own recovery and at the same time I just kind of felt that in a way it wasn't enough and I, I felt a calling almost like an obligation that I needed to share this with other women going through this and I know if I would have gotten my hands on a book like this and I know they're out there I would have immediately picked it up I would have read it and I, I, I'm i sure I would have felt better in some way and it would have you know helped guide me
0: so Well, absolutely, and, you know, obviously I met you through the show, and you were listening to the show, and you knew that you had been through lots of trials and tribulations with your husband. So can you tell us a little bit about your struggle and what it's been like to go through this sexual addiction process? Wow. Well, I learned so much
1: that I you know it's such a complex thing because you know we are complex as people so any any problem any addiction of course is never simple and um it, and then again it varies from one situation to another all people are different obviously but i um when i when i first met my husband i kind of picked up on something that was a little different about him it's almost as if the whole thing, the relationship, everything was a little bit maybe too good to be true, a little um, just not typical maybe. And so I started seeing a little more um, clues and and things like that that kind of um, piqued my interest and kind of um, made me think, okay, well, I need to really trust my instincts here. And so almost in a guilty way, I kind of started thinking more, kind of watching, maybe being a little more suspicious. And things just started evolving, and I found out things, and um, I finally, you know, I approached him with it, and this was early on in our relationship. And uh, maybe because we weren't too, too involved yet, and he felt, didn't feel quite as intimidated, he, he admitted to me outright, you know, he said, yeah, he said, I'm a, I'm addicted to sex and porn. Well, I was floored, uh, to say the least, but I really didn't know that much about it. Um, and so I did a lot of reading and, and listening and um, just, you know, trying to educate myself on that. Eventually, I spoke to you, which was incredibly helpful, but... Um, so, you know, and he, he assured me, you know, this was before I met you, and I'm not doing any of this now, and I, he's been going to a counselor. I knew he was. And so, mm-hmm. anyway, long story short, um, you know, I decided to give him the benefit of the doubt. I, I thought it would be a little shallow of me not to, and I didn't know him that well yet. So, time progressed, and I found out more and more, but um, it was supposed to have been in the past. And so... We ended up getting engaged, we got married, and um, after we were married, I um, I just knew there was more. And so we, I approached him again, and then through a lot of um, begging and demanding and screaming, crying, everything, I got him to finally talk more, and although not in person, of course, he wouldn't do that. Um, it was through texting or emails we would actually communicate, um, even though we were married. That's another thing we never could talk without arguing about this. So, um, be careful what you ask for. This um, the full disclosure thing is was one of the most the most hurtful things. I, I got what I asked for. It, you know, it should have been done. I know now in a clinical setting with a professional. Um although it was staggered at first, you know, he would give me little bits and pieces, only what he knew I knew, thinking that would satisfy me. But I always knew there was more. And so the more I probed, the more I got. <laughs> and I don't know if it was a combination of trying to just, you know, be a little mean, hurtful, or make me just quit asking. But, wow, you know, I, that that was really hard. Anyway, you know, um, things went to worse. I'm not going to say all of it now. It, it's going to be in the memoir. But it, it went from bad to worse. And when I when I thought I had, you know, been through just about everything as far as this topic goes, there there was a lot more. And um, it, it progressed to something that was completely unthinkable, the worst I could have ever imagined. Um, not and years, you have
0: been married, Ev. I'm. Sorry. How long have you been married?
1: We got married in um, September of 2016. So we weren't married for long before things really fell apart.
0: And what's going on with the two of you now?
1: Well, I moved out um, a couple of months ago. And um, we, we still communicate um, only because, you know, only when we have to really, because we're still, you know, legally married and there are things that we have to talk about from time to time, but um, it was really difficult. But, you know, to moving out, I realized that I realized how miserable I was and how badly I needed to, you know, I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't work on myself while living there with him, you know, I, I couldn't do that. So.
0: Well, and I want to ask you, you know, obviously you've, you, when you're dealing with a sex addict who is not in good recovery, there are constant struggles. So I want to know what you consider to be the absolute most dis- difficult aspect of your struggle, you know, the most difficult, the most hurtful, the most shocking, and maybe the, the, mo- the most difficult to accept. Well, okay. For one,
1: um, I, you know, I felt like I had finally found some real happiness in a relationship. And I finally thought that I had found the person that I would never get bored with. I could picture myself growing old with, sharing everything with, very much in love, very happy, totally fulfilled. This was it. And I was Determined I would work on this relationship, I would keep it, I was in it for the long haul. And then it's as though when I started discovering all of this, it's like it was all a kind of like a big lie to me, almost like a cruel cool joke. You know, worse than if I would have ever had it, it was as though I believed I had it and never did, um, which so painful because... It, it was all taken away from me, I felt like, you know, before I even had a chance. Our marriage never even had a chance to be a real marriage before things just really, really got bad. And uh, it, it was, like I said, it, it was the, the illusion of um, I felt like everything was a lie, you know.
0: Okay, so obviously one of the most difficult struggles is not knowing what to believe. Thinking that everything is a lie, and I would assume it would even be questioning yourself: Are you reading too much into it? Are you being paranoid? Is there any part of what he's saying that is true?
1: Well, I know that I didn't handle things correctly, and that's another thing that I'm adding a lot to um, in the memoir because I don't want to portray this as just a one-sided thing. Um you know, even though he had a problem, he still needed some support and that kind of thing. And so I did that, but not completely wholeheartedly because I always was angry. And so, um, you know, I lived every day with the fear, okay, he's doing this behind my back again. I'm being lied to again. I'm trying to be happy. We have some happy moments. Then I shut it down and I don't let myself be that way because, I, it's a fear of being hurt again. I survived that again. And the lack of trust, you know, because he was supposedly in recovery before and never really was, you know, and even when he started really working a program, there were relapses. And so it's like, you know, I've had, you have to earn trust. And there were more times, there was a longer period of time that I was being betrayed than not. And so it's like, how do you recover from that overnight? I mean, you know, you can't. So that that was a big struggle, you know, for me.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that I know about partners of sex addicts is that, you know, I believe that they need to use their head, what they think, their heart, what they feel, and their gut, what they know. And so you are doing the dance of trying to figure out what is possibly going on, what is real, and, for instance, give our listening audience um, an idea of one of the big lies that he told you. Um,
1: You know, oh, wow, well, um, it's it's a little graphic, but, one of the biggest things that I just still can't wrap my head around is the fact that, you know, when we first became intimate, I asked him, you know, do I need to be extra careful? Do we need to use protection? That kind of thing. And I know that that's a crazy thing and I shouldn't have even asked it, you know, and it happens, you know, it it just, that's just how it goes. And so he assured me, you know, Oh no, I'm fine. I'm, I'm, I'm good. You know, we don't have to worry, you know, and crazily. I you know, I believed him. And then later on when I found out the um enormity of, of his addiction, I asked him specific details. This was part of the disclosure. I said, I need to know, look, you know, how safe were you? How careful were you? Protection, not protection, tell me when, how often and he told me, you know, and he didn't always use protection and I thought, Oh my God, what? You know, I said, How could you do that? I said, You lied to me. Now, granted, it was my fault not to take better care of myself. I get that. But still, he intentionally risked my health. I risked my health. But he intentionally, you know, made me believe otherwise and, um, you know, continued to have sex with me for a couple of years, knowing every time we did this that he was risking my health. And um, I thought that was just incredibly... I I just couldn't imagine it. It was very hurtful to me, the disrespect, the the whole lack of regard, you know, for me and my safety.
0: Well, absolutely. My fault. Yeah. Unfortunately, addicts are so caught up in their addiction that they become very adolescent and they only think of themselves and they (laughs) also really have that feel of invincibility. So they really in their own minds don't think they're putting you at risk because they don't think anything could happen to them. And you and I both what? know that when you're in that kind of world, there are lots of problems. So I'm I'm glad that you're holding yourself accountable because women have to stay safe no matter what. And yet what I know to be true is that you wanted to believe him. That's part of that partner trauma that you could not right. believe word.
1: Yes, and um, another thing I wanted to say, too, was not to sound overly mistrustful of the whole, you know, of human nature, because people are inherently good, you know, that's the norm, I believe. But, right. you know, when I was speaking, yes, and when I was speaking to my attorney, You know, he said, he said, Evelyn, you know, because I kept telling him, I know there's still more, you know, uh, obviously, you know, Rowan is going to take up for himself. You know, I'm the enemy, so to speak, when it comes to this. And he said, you know, Evelyn, the saying, you know, about the tip of the iceberg, it's so true. He said, you can almost believe that in many cases, not always, that you only know about a third of what's truly going on. And that, again, is just Human and um which is another scary thing and and it just makes it so overwhelming, you know for me um, just the whole you know reality of it, so to speak
0: well and unfortunately, here you are, you said I needed to be separated so that you could kind of get your bearings and decide what you need to do, and in normal relationships, that's not true. you don't have to believe only about a third. But when you're dealing with addicts and they'll be the first to tell you, they lie. That is part of the addiction. They lie. And so you never really are safe, you never really do know the truth, and you never really know what's going on with them. So now, how do you reckon that? I mean, obviously, you and I both know, that being a partner of a sex addict is the worst form of betrayal in any kind of relationship. How has he hurt you? Why is partner betrayal the worst form of betrayal?
1: Yeah, it's well, I think for many reasons. I mean, you know, you you think back, you know what? For me, one of the biggest things was we had a lot of good memories, a real lot of good memories, and it, it's as though they're ruined now. You know, I can't even go back and reminisce on the, the, the good times because it's just so overshadowed by the, by the bad times, and that's that betrayal is just hurtful. And, I mean, obviously when you marry someone, you know, you, you're in it. You're in it. For the real, re- the right reasons, hopefully, and I, just the knowing that this was all done behind your back makes you think, well, surely he never loved me at all. I was completely used, and and just the not knowing all this time, you just feel so awful that everything was not as what you perceived it to be. Everything, and it, it takes away what was good. It did for me. And that kind of betrayal is just horrible, and the embarrassment. I mean, you know, without getting into too many details, it started to be, and I never expected this or looked for this at first, even when I knew about his problem, but I started noticing that he couldn't even refrain when we were in public. You know, he would do double takes at women all the time, which is common, okay, but flirtatious, you know, um, giggly, giddy, almost like a child, anytime time a female was around or talking to us um, in front of me, you know? Um, And these women and I would sometimes glance at each other and, and, you know, it's a female thing, but I could tell they were embarrassed for me. And they knew I I saw this and I knew they saw that I saw it. And so embarrassment to, you know, just, and then the not knowing what the future is going to be now, you know, when you first find all this out. So, Yeah, that's why I think this kind of betrayal, I don't think it gets much worse as far as betrayal goes. You know, worse things can happen in life, obviously. It's always worse, you know, could be worse. But betrayal-wise, that's why I believe it.
0: Well, and, you know, what we know to be true is you are supposed to be able to trust your spouse. They are supposed to have your back. They are supposed to love you the most. They are supposed to respect you. And so when he was flirting with other women or being inappropriate, when you knew that he was actually seeing other people, it really shakes the core of what you can count on. And you've been going through that since 2016. So well, do you yeah. have any plans to go back with him? I, I don't think
1: I can I haven't completely um, you know told myself that's a definitive thing because I've learned to never say never in good ways and bad ways never say never honestly for mm-hmm. me but that's what's you know been happening but um, right now I can't the the pain is just too bad and, and we can't communicate and so you know as everyone knows, you have to be able to do that. And I mean, I talk about that in the memoir too. That's one reason we just stayed at a standstill. You know, I was determined to get him to talk, which I know I can't, I was determined to kind of control his recovery. You obviously cannot control someone else's recovery. And he was always, you know, in defense mode, always, even if I approached him in a very casual non-confrontational way just as a couple married couple we need to close we could never do that never you know and um i don't see right now that ever happening and you know i i you know bottom line i, I, I i'll never trust him carol because even when he swore to me he was in recovery he wasn't and i i'm telling you these men can lie so well Screaming and hollering and, and projecting and turning it back onto me, and now he's the victim, and how dare me question him. And, you know, if you didn't know him, you would think anyone that would be that upset would be surely because they were telling the truth and being called a liar. It was so convincing. How could he be that mad if he were really guilty? But he was, you know,
0: mm-hmm. and, and they
1: can, they or such manipulators, and he could fool just about anybody, you know.
0: So right difficult. right, okay, so I heard you hesitate when I said, "Could you ever go back with him and Obviously, I believe that any woman can make the choice to go back with an addict if they're in true recovery, but your husband has consistently slipped and relapsed. Tell us about one of mm-hmm. the relapses. well, you know
1: porn you know I don't think his relapse well in the past his relapses did involve um, you know visiting prostitutes and we we did do I did have him um, take a lie detector test but
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know what about since then you know and the way you know the questions are worded and you can only ask a certain amount of questions or it kind of changes the validity of it all so I really, it wasn't totally convincing for me, and, you know, maybe he thinks, okay, I'm off the hook now. I passed this test. I'm going to go out and do what I want to do now, um, you know, that kind of thing, and his relapses, I know, were involving porn. Um, I'm sure chatting and texting, um, he even told me, you know, these thoughts these of lust are always in his head, you know, always, and it makes uh-huh. me it, it makes it hard for me to understand. You know, some addiction is hard, but you know, say it's a, a chemical substance. If you can avoid it, then you're not going to do it. But you know, women are everywhere. The internet is so easily accessible. You know, how and the thoughts in their head all the time. How do you get rid of that? You know, so it it's so hard for me to understand that he could do it, especially since. The continuous relapsing and never confiding in me at all, or I'm supposed to be a little bit involved in his recovery, not every detail, but he wouldn't tell his counselors or you know, sponsors or anything either. So,
0: wow, so he wasn't even honest with them.
1: Oh, no, no,
0: <laughs> and so how did he find him. that out that he was not even honest with his counselors?
1: Um, I pretty much asked him in in a roundabout way, you know, if I would, if it would be a yes or no question, I'm certainly going to get, you know, a no, Um, but kind of in a roundabout way. And um, he, you know, pretty much in a yelling, screaming uh, voice kind of admitted it, so to speak. But, and then again, the, I went to counseling with him after a lot of, you know, hesitance right in the beginning um, and he, what he was telling the counselor, I could see right through it. I, I almost got up and walked out because I said, you know, I said to myself, oh my God, you're so lying. You are lying in front of me and him. You're lying. He doesn't see it, and this is all a facade. And I'm so angry, you know. So that's another reason that I know he, you know, he was.
0: Okay, and so what is he doing today? Where do you think he's at in terms of his life?
1: I he's struggling a lot. Um, he he is working a program harder than he's ever worked before. I do know that. However, he does have some relapses in between there. You know, um, but he goes to pretty much every night. Is is there's some kind of meeting or church, and on Saturdays he he travels. An hour and a half away, and sees um, a sex therapist, um, a C-stat. He's doing all of this. I just don't know how much of this is really just going through the motions, but he does seem very dedicated right now. I'm just not there yet as far as trust.
0: Mhm. Mhm. Well, I get that. You can only be betrayed so many times. When, even when it looks like they're doing well. You're smart enough not to have hope because you don't want to get duped again. You you definitely want to say, well, if he's really working hard, time will tell.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And I know myself, I I can't go through that again. You know, I I know I cannot, so I'd rather if I even do this, give it a lot of time and just kind of see as hard as this is and you know, it's not as hard it could never be as hard as what I was going through. And, um, you know, just every single day it was, it consumed everything. It nearly destroyed me. It had an impact on my career, uh, my family, everything. It it was, and I was listening when you were describing the three types of sexual addiction just now Mm -hmm. as your introduction to the show, he's all of it. He's, All of those things, you know, I I was trying to think, well, which one is he? He's everyone. Um, And and part of me feels sorry for him. He's not in a good place either. He's lost a ton of weight. He's probably going to lose his house. His job has suffered. Um, So it's it's a very difficult thing. Um, And and I just want people to listen to professionals like you and, and, you know, really try to, Educate themselves on that and what their options are. There's always a solution. It may not be what you want, you know, but uh-huh. there is a solution always, you know, so.
0: Well, you know, you said he's all those things, and I I wanna, I really want to check that out real quick because I okay. said, is he somebody who... Needs an adrenaline rush. He needs that excitement. He loves that intensity and frequency in his sex addiction. You think that might be him?
1: Absolutely. I've asked him. You know, he's obsessed with prostitutes. Um, not that he's seen a million of them, I don't believe, but he stalks around, drives around excitement from just seeing them. He's told me this in detail. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, and he specifically told me exactly what you said about the taboo thing, Um, not that necessarily he thinks lesbian activity is taboo, you know, um, try to be open-minded about things like that, but he was raised in a certain way that, you know, um, anything sexual was very hush-hush and not talked about, and so he told me, he said, it's the thrill of the chase, just like you said, Um, and it's the fact that he's doing something totally against the way he was raised and what he thinks he should not be doing.
0: Mm -hmm. So when we talked Mm -hmm. about thrill of the chase, obviously that's fantasy sex. It's Imagining the seduction, the chase, the pursuit, that can be more arousing than the actual sex act. So you really think that he loved that as well as he loved kind of that intensity, that taboo stuff. And then, clearly, um, I want to ask you about the numbing, because that's that third type of arousal. Uh, Do you think he numbed out at all?
1: I do, because he did tell me that it wasn't fulfilling, and he always felt worse after, you know, say, an encounter. I mean, everything you said, and um, I don't know how much time we have, but like as far as the, the fantasy part, um you know he would actually talk to these women and make them believe that he was near them, and that he set up an actual meeting and he was going to go and meet them, and then he wouldn 't show up but just that simulation for him talking that way was was a big deal for him he 's told me, and he 's done most of that 's the most part of his what he did that that was the most of what he did you know
0: mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. so now you know obviously. Again, you're writing this memoir because you want to get your truth out, your word out, and you want to help other women. What would you say? Were there any signs that that told you that your husband had relapsed that you either ignored or that you paid attention to and immediately acted upon?
1: Okay, well, one thing that I sort of ignored but not totally and I bet a lot of listeners out there um are going to relate to this is with the lack of intimacy with me it seems like such an oxymoron you know a sex addict but he doesn't want sex with his wife I was boring I was available so therefore there wasn't the thrill of the chase I was right there and it wasn't what excited him you know um was, that was like one sign, um, and I don't think there was really much that I ignored. I'm pretty, you know, uh, females are this way. We want to know, we want to kind of, co- we want to confront them. We want to talk now. We want to talk, talk, talk. We want to know, and men just shut down. And um, so I don't really think there was much I ignored, but I could always he he was distant, you know, and I knew there were things going on. I just, you know, when you know someone.
0: Yeah. Mhm. And so you but, could tell that something had changed and he was distant and it wasn't the way he used to be. Would you agree? Yes. Yeah, okay. you know. And you mm-hmm. would confront him about it and what would he say?
1: It was always, you know, he's a big man, deep loud voice, and I mean, just he would he would never we would never would talk. It was instant verbal abuse. Um, Immediately, I was the perpetrator. He was the victim. He would never address my question, ever. It was a roundabout dance and immediately blaming me for things. Never addressed it. He would always go around it. And the whole time, you know, yelling, screaming, verbally abusive, while doing this, yeah.
0: And and so what would that verbal abuse do to you? Would it shut you down? Would it make you angry? Would it make you defensive? What would happen? It would do
1: anything but shut me down, unfortunately. So it became a yelling match, a blame game kind of thing. Um, and at the end of it, I was more angry than ever, A, because I didn't get an answer, which I should have known better, and B, he would blame me. C, he wasn't going to talk to me. I mean, it just goes on and on. Um, I always felt much worse. I never shut down, and that's not a good thing either. So we were constantly butting heads, and nothing ever got resolved, and I want people that read the memoir to know that um, I wasted so much time doing things the wrong way, Uh, you know, and when they read your um, contributions to to the book, they're going to know the right thing to do. And that's why I want to do this.
0: Well, and obviously people are probably wondering how can they get the memoir, but in actuality it is not finished yet. So we are going to be announcing it on the show, and it will be on my website, and we'll have a marketing situation where you can get it on Amazon. So I want to encourage people just to stay tuned for that because it is a work in progress. You've been working really hard on it. Um, Again, when you give your reality a voice and when you are willing to do what it takes to be honest, good things come out of that. I mean, you're going to be helping a lot of people.
1: I'm hoping so. I'm really wanting to do that. So I, I certainly hope so.
0: So then let me just ask you, how do you think others will really benefit from reading the memoir? What is your I, greatest?
1: Yeah, it's, it's going to be so beneficial because, Women suffering alone through this are going to know they're not alone, and they are going to get my first-hand account. They're going to relate to a lot of, you know, these men are so much alike, and the women going through it go through so much of the same things. So they're going to get some insight. Right off the bat, they're going to know they're not alone. Just that, you know, and it's going to be informative. I talk about my feelings in depth. I talk about everything. It's graphic. It's shocking. It's shocking it's going to relate to a lot of people on a personal level and then in addition to that it's going to give them some um professional guidance you know you are going to point out what i did right what i did wrong what i should have done why i was doing what i did and the same for him you're going to give some clarity on the whole so they're going to they're going to learn from that they're going to hopefully go out and uh take your advice and so for all of the reasons, it's it's going to serve more than one purpose. It's going to be really helpful, I believe.
0: Well, and, you know, there aren't many books written by both the partner and the clinician to kind of give that bird's-eye view of what you're going through and then clinically why you're going through that. Wouldn't you agree?
1: Oh, yeah, it's going to be wonderful. I wish I had read something like this. I I really feel it would have helped me a lot. And, it's, and you're going to point out throughout the book what I did wrong. And it's not going to be one of the typical, you know, this is what you do. This is what you do. It's also going to point out, look, Evelyn, this is what you did wrong, and this is what you should have done. And so that is, is different, I think, because we're focusing on the negative side as far as how I handle things also.
0: Well, I don't think that I said this is what you did wrong, but I clearly talk about the tendency for partners to be duped, the tendency for them to want to believe the real thing, the tendency for them to be in denial along with the addict because they don't want to believe any different.
1: Yeah. Um, Now, for me, when I look at myself, one thing I believe I did wrong, or I guess, didn't do that I should have done was I didn't get the counseling and the help that I needed Um, so you know when reading this memoir it's going to give a lot of insight as to, to why that would have been helpful I wasted a lot of time you know not doing it
0: well, I just so appreciate your candor and your honesty, and, you know, I really feel like you're going to be making a big difference. We don't have enough memoirs about partner trauma. And when do you expect it to be available to the public? And are you, are you I'm thinking yeah. the title now? Yeah,
1: Yeah, um, the title is a little um, strange, but the title says exactly how i felt and it's um i love you i miss you i wish you were dead
0: so i um, think that's amazing because that (laughs) definitely carries on with the whole gamut of emotions that occur when you love an addict who is either not working hard enough or is not working at all
1: yeah my subtitle is um, pretty much uh, from insanity to recovery and how it felt to be married to a sex addict. So,
0: Well, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. You know, I, giving our partners some hope, strength, and recovery that even if the addict doesn't get better, they can get better. And one of the ways that they can do that is by taking care of themselves. And I just really think as sad as it is that you had to get separated, you needed to get separated to create those boundaries to really decide what did you need for yourself. You're right, and it's
1: been tough. I mean, it still is, and it's a work in progress, you know.
0: Absolutely. So as we end for today, is there anything else that you can can say that will give some inspiration and hope to our listeners, both to the addict? And to the partner
1: Okay well to the addict You know I feel for anyone with an addiction I know they struggle I don't blame anyone for Having any kind of addiction I just hope that they know They need to do the right thing And stick with it And not get discouraged when they have relapses And as far as for partners You know I just feel that they Need to be aware Trust their instincts Give it a try And if they get to the point where there's more difficulty and bad times than good times, then something needs to change. You know, maybe it's just a therapeutic separation, but something needs to change um, when they get to that point so they can go forward.
0: You got it. Well, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom tonight and keep us posted on how you're doing and, you know, We know that living with an addict means that you're on a roller coaster to some extent, and I'm going to ask you to do whatever it takes to stay steady and not let the addict throw you into any kind of situation whereby you don't trust yourself. Right. Thank you so much tonight, Ev. Thanks a lot.
1: Thank you so much, Carol. We'll talk again soon.
0: Sounds good. Have a good week.
1: Bye-bye. You as well. Bye-bye.
0: So that obviously is a woman who has made it her mission to take care of herself, to work on self-care, and to create healthy boundaries that make her life better. And, you know, We just can't stress that enough. When you are dealing with addiction, you have to come first. And oftentimes that means that what you need to do is put the oxygen mask on yourself to make a real difference in your own life before you know where to go next. So I'm Carol Jurgensen-Sheets, a.k.a. Carol the Coach, and I appreciate you listening tonight. And hope that you'll listen to more shows in the future. And as I say at the end of every show, you know, there's only going to be one of you at all times. I hope you're repeating this to yourself. I hope you've heard it enough. I want you fearlessly to have the courage to be yourself. We'll talk to you next week. So no matter what your plight, you make it a good one because you own your own destiny. And you can make a difference in your life and the life of others.